Well, as I said, we're going to look today at Romans chapter 6. And we spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 5, and I'm not anticipating we give chapter 6 the same kind of focus. But again, uh, as is the case with all of uh, Paul's letters, and, and, and certainly is true of Paul's letter to the Romans, there's a lot here that can be said about these passages. And so we're going to today uh, look at chapter 6 and, and, and get a bit of an overview of it. And so let us dive right in. Uh, just to give you an outline of it, what Paul is doing here is asking two questions. First question he asks is in 1 through 14. The second is in 15 through 23. And they're parallels. It's basically the same question that he's asking. And uh, he gives uh, parallel answers to that question. And you'll see what we're talking about as we read Romans 6, 1 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. 
As we looked last week in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, uh, we are born sinners. That's what we drew from that last week. Every human being who is born in the normal way is united to Adam and inherits from him a sin nature. And I say born in the ordinary way because that uh, excludes Christ. Christ was not born in the ordinary way and therefore did not inherit Adam's sin nature and therefore he never sinned uh, even though he was tempted just as we are. So the virgin birth is very important for us to believe. If we take that away, then Christ is just a sinner as we are and not the Son of God. But back to us. As Paul tells us in the end of chapter 5, we're not born neutral in regard to sin. We aren't born and have a 50-50 chance at uh, doing right and doing wrong. We are born sinners and therefore we sin. No one has to teach us how to sin. It comes naturally to us. Now, you might get taught how to do certain sins, but nobody teaches you how to sin in general. Sin continues to cause problems in our lives, all through our lives. All your problems are caused by sin, either your own sin, the consequences of said sin, or someone else's sin. If affecting you, sinning against you, sinning and uh, in, in affecting your life by their sin. If there was no sin in the world, there would be no problems, no pain, not even death. We have all these things because of sin. Sin is the problem. Now, you would think, Seeing that, understanding that, that would make us say, oh, we should, we should not sin. <laughs> and maybe we do to a degree. But even though sin causes all of our problems, we tend to like it a lot. Sin is fun. There are some sins in which we revel, in which we delight. And there are other sins which we hate. And then there are sins which we have a love-hate relationship. We love them, but we hate them at the same time. So Paul here, on top of that discussion that he's been having in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, he proposes two questions about sin here, first in verse 1 and then in verse 15. And they're essentially the same question. If you look at verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Are we to continue in sin? The word continue there, uh, I, would trans I, like to, I like to translate a little different. Are we to tarry in sin? You know, are we to hang out with sin? Are we to abide in it? Are we to remain sinning? And then in verse 15, essentially again the same question, he's, he asks it more directly, are we to sin? Because we're not under law but under grace. So are we to continue in sin? Are we to sin? That's the question that Paul is addressing here. And it's something of a strange question to ask, isn't it? You know, sh should you sin? Should you? Y'all can say it. You can answer. No, okay. Everybody's been to Sunday school here. We all know the answer to that question. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't sin. We know that because 
We're church-going, moral people. We know the right answer to the question, are we to continue in sin? Of course, we shouldn't. But So what kind of question is this that Paul's asking us here? Why is he asking this question? Well, he gives two rationalizations that he is anticipating that people have as he continues to teach about sin and that everyone is a sinner and the answer to that problem that Christ has provided. Free grace, salvation, justification by faith, by grace. So Paul's asking that question, but he's anticipating that people will rationalize sinning even out of hearing the gospel. So he says, first of all, should we continue in sin? That grace may abound. So some people are reasoning, well, we should, we should sin so grace can abound. And then secondly, in verse 15, we should sin because we're not under law but under grace. You know, we don't have to pay attention to the law anymore. We're under grace. God is forgiving and it's all good. So Paul's been telling us from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3 that everybody's a sinner. Every normal human being is a sinner regardless of race, nationality, or creed. But he's also been telling us of God's amazing grace to sinners such as we are. Romans 2, or 3, 23 and through 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's what he stressed in the passage we looked at last week in the latter part of chapter 5, verse, look right there, verse 17 of chapter 5. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So see, there's some great news for sinful human beings here in Paul's letter to the Roman. Romans, God meets human sin with his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. So Paul anticipates a question that might naturally arise from this teaching. If the law, as he just states there at the end of chapter 5, if the law increases sin, in other words, you know, if you aren't really aware of all the rules, if you aren't really uh, fully aware of all the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, you might not really fully understand what adultery is. You might not really understand that you should honor your father and mother or that it's wrong to steal. You know, you might not be fully aware of that. But when you read it and you understand that God has revealed that these are ten very important rules. This is the, the moral law here. Then it shows you, it sets a spotlight on your own sinfulness. You more clearly understand that you're a sinner. So sin actually increases as you read the scripture. You see what it says and you are condemned by the law. So the law condemns us. It, it, it exposes our sins and makes us condemned. But then Christ comes in and this increase in sin, this understanding that we have a great need, 
makes us turn to God and experience his grace in Christ. We see that God, as we hear the gospel, we, we understand that he has made a provision for people who have broken this law, for the worst sinners. So the law increases sin, and sin leads to an increase of grace. God meets our sin with his grace. Then logically, Paul anticipates this question, why don't we just increase sinning so that grace would increase? That's a little weird to ask that question, but that's what he's asking. And, and people were posing that and criticizing Paul for what he was teaching, and this was the argument that they were using. You're just going to make people more sinful because they hear this free grace that you're offering to everyone, and, and they're just going to say, well, I'll take the free gift and just do what I want to do. But he goes on, and he continues to address the question. Uh, look, if, if we're not under law, but under grace, as he says there in chapter, uh, verse 15, you know, if, uh, if I'm not judged by the law anymore, uh, I'm, I'm under God's grace and mercy, then it doesn't matter if I keep the law or not. I'm under grace, not under law. And to put it in the way that we probably better understand it, and I, assu I am assured uh, because of my own personal experience, and, and I think that you all will know what I'm talking about, that sometimes we might say, well, I, don't, I know I shouldn't do this, but God will forgive me. And so we go on and commit a sin anyway. God will forgive me, so he'll sweep it under the rug and it'll be all good. And that's the kind of attitude, the rationalization of sin that Paul is addressing here. Have we never caught ourselves making light of our failures on the ground that God will excuse and forgive them? I'm sure that we all have done that. Thinking, oh, grace will abound. We're not under the law, we're under grace. God will excuse us. That's what Paul's addressing here. Well, he gives an answer to, the, to both of these questions. Is, you know, should we sin? You know, should we rationalize our sin? In verse uh, 2 and, and, and then again afterwards, uh, after verse 15, he says, by no means, by no means. There's an emphatic answer to that question. Should we sin? And it's the answer that you all gave me. No, we shouldn't sin. Absolutely not, we shouldn't sin. We should not ever rationalize our sin. And just a survey of some of the uh, different translations and paraphrases of Scripture uh, this phrase that Paul uses throughout his letters, by no means, New American Standard says, may it never be, that's actually probably closest to the, uh, the Greek, uh, may it not be is what it says there. But I love some others, uh, God forbid, that's what the King James says, should we keep on sinning? God forbid. Or the New English Bible, no, no, certainly not. Or my personally favorite, uh, my personal favorite, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase, and he was very British. If you look at a picture of him, he's got a pipe, and you know he's an Anglican, so he's got the collar. He translates that, that phrase, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> what a ghastly thought. Should we sin? What a ghastly thought. He's got a pipe, and you can just hear him saying it. Mm -hmm. But the question is, you know, 
Of course we shouldn't sin. We shouldn't rationalize sin, but why not? And that's the meat of what Paul says here in these two paragraphs. So we got two reasons here that Paul gives us for not sinning. Uh, and, and it is important for us to explore Paul's reasoning behind not sinning. Because, number one, we all struggle with sin. And the struggle will continue uh, all through our lives on this earth as we know it. From reading chapter 6, it's not difficult to get the impression that the Christian can expect to, to, to get to a place where he doesn't struggle with sin. But chapter 7 is the antidote for that, and we'll get to that uh, uh, in the coming weeks. Paul there describes his ongoing struggle with sin, the Christian's ongoing struggle with sin. But here in chapter 6, Paul gives us teaching to arm us for this fight with sin. You know, we, we all struggle with certain temptations, and we all are apt to rationalize doing those things committing those sins that we especially are drawn to. So let's explore what Paul says here briefly in these two paragraphs about why we shouldn't sin, why it should never be, and why it's a ghastly thought to continue in sin, thinking that grace will abound. Well, first he says, we die to sin. Look at verse 2. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And that's the short answer. He develops this idea throughout the next uh, 12 verses or so. We've died to sin. How can we still live in it? What does it mean that a Christian is dead to sin? Well, he's referring here, if we want to think about it theologically for a moment, he's referring here to the believer's union with Christ. As we looked at last week and, and many other weeks, we are naturally united to Adam. What he did, we did. We sinned in him and with him because God appointed him to be our federal head, our representative, the representative of the human race. And so we uh, are born from him by ordinary generation, and therefore what he did, we did. It was not only passed on to us, but because we uh, are connected to him naturally when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, all of mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden. All mankind rebelled against him, and the whole human history that we have uh, bears that out. We see ourselves in our sin, and if we look at ourselves truthfully as individuals, we know that's the case as well. So that's what he's been talking about here, union with Adam, but then God didn't leave us there in Adam to have him as our representative. He sent another Adam, the second Adam, Another representative, Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do and to erase the effects of Adam's fall. So by faith, we can move from being united to Adam as our representative to being represented by Jesus Christ. Just as we sinned in and with Adam and are guilty, we participated in his rebellion against God, that even though we weren't there in the Garden of Eden, it's credited to us as human beings. By faith, we can participate in and with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So everything that he did gets credited to us because he's our representative. He lived a perfect life. He paid the penalty for our sin. He rose again to new life. Paul says that we are united to him 
in his death. We died with Christ. We died to sin when Christ died for sin. And just as Christ was raised to life, so we in him and with him are raised to new life. Christians participate in the death and resurrection of Christ, just as human beings have participated in Adam's sin. And he points us to baptism, because baptism, part of what baptism symbolizes for the believer, is our union with Christ. We're, there's the death and resurrection, going under, being raised again, new life. He points them back to that, so they'll remember the symbolism there, and it helps them understand their union with Christ. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse 4. We were buried, buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When faced with temptation, Paul then tells us what to do in verse 11. We've been united with Christ. We've died uh, to sin. We've been raised to new life. Therefore, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I count myself dead to sin. When I'm faced with a temptation, I should stop and think, you know what, I am dead to sin. So what does that mean? We've been trying to talk about now. We talked about it theologically, what it means, but let's think about it uh, more on terms that we might understand. Everybody's probably seen a, a, a gangster movie, you know, The Godfather and things like this. And you know, there's inevitably a, 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 a time where a, a person who's in the family, you know, you got the the patriarch of the family who's the leader. Uh, and, and there's a son who's supposed to carry on the family business, but maybe he goes to the good side. He becomes a policeman, and uh, the boss says, or the father says, you know, he's dead to me. And what he means, it's like he didn't exist. He's no longer part of my family, part of my existence, and I don't even acknowledge that he exists. Paul says that we need to think about sin in these terms that we're dead to sin. We're like the son, not like the father. We don't say, sin is dead to me. That's not what Paul's saying. We are dead to sin. We're like the son. Think of it this way. Sin is that father. He's a criminal. <laughs> he's a bad person. He's tyrannical. He's, he's oppressive. And through Christ... We're disowned by sin. Sin no longer is our father. Sin is no longer our boss. Sin is no longer our master. And, and, and we are dead to him. We are dead to sin. It has no longer any say-so in our lives. And that's what Paul's saying. Consider that. When you died with Christ, you died to sin. Now you're alive to God. Now you are in his family. Now you are connected to him. And you are alive to God through Christ Jesus. And you should consider that as you are facing temptation. Am I going to continue living the will of this oppressive master, this tyrant, this criminal? Am I going to continue to do the things that he wants me to do? Or am I going to do what my heavenly father wants me to do? That's what it means 
practically speaking, to consider yourself dead to sin. Now you can voluntarily do the will of the old man, the old boss, and we do, but it leads to slavery, and that brings us to the second thing that he talks about. Verse 15 and following, he says that we should not, by, uh, by no means should we continue in sin because we're under, not under law but under grace because we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer, it goes hand in hand with what he said before. As I said before, it's a parallel. What then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The point he's making here is that sin is slavery. It's not freedom. Everything in our world today tells us that sin is freedom. That, that to do what you want to do is true freedom, but it's not. Slavery is, I mean, sin is slavery. For example, well, here's an example. Sin is like a credit card. You know, a credit card promises that you can go, to the, you can go and buy whatever you want to buy. You know, you can live it up and get whatever you want, even though you can't afford it. And there's some freedom in that. I can have what I want right now. But you know there's a price to pay for that. You max those babies out and you become a slave of the credit card company. I know this by experience. You can't pay it off, so you just you have to pay interest. And month to month you're trying to pay and you can never climb that mountain. You become a slave. And sin is the exact same way. It promises freedom but you end up, it gets its hooks in you, and you can't get free. So sin enslaves, and then he goes on even further. Not only does it enslave you, but it leads to death. It's ultimately destructive. So he's saying, look, consider who your master is. If you've died with Christ, you're free. You're no longer under the tyrant's sin. You're free from that. He's no longer your master. You're no longer in bondage to sin. He's hanging around. He's trying to have influence in your life. But consider yourself dead to sin, alive to Christ, recognizing that you're, you're no longer a, a, his slave. You don't have to do his bidding anymore. Isn't that wonderful? Suppose you were, a, you were a slave and your master was an oppressive tyrant, beat you, uh, kept you chained in the basement. Well, one day you're You're dead. You're dead. Well, what, what influence does the master have over you then? He can't make you do anything. But then a good master comes along, a good king, and he raises you from the dead. <laughs> he brings you into not only his service, but his family. And, man, that would make you say, hey, I'm not dead. I'm no longer under a tyrant. I'm no longer a slave. I belong to this one, and I want to serve and love him. I want, to, I want to do his bidding, this good, kind, loving king. I want him to be my master because we all got to serve somebody. As Bob Dylan sang in his Christian phase, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. We all serve someone. It could be sin 
or righteousness. Sin will kill us. Sin will oppress us. Righteousness will lead to freedom. Serving the Lord is true freedom. R.C. Trench, uh, in one of his commentaries, says this, The only true freedom is the freedom in God. To depart from him is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one and one gracious master for a thousand tyrannous lords. May the Lord give us grace to do what Paul says here. Just in verse 19, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's something to consider in our battle with sin, to think about the fact that, yes, we've died to sin, it's no longer our master, and to, to go back into his service, the service of sin, is not freedom, it's oppression, it's slavery, and it ultimately leads to death. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for the freedom that is in Christ, and, and may we understand what it means to be truly free. And Lord, we taste our sins, and we enjoy them, and we think that they're good, but we don't see the problems down the road. Pray that we would see that today. And Lord, we pray that we would also see, we would also taste and see that you are good, truly good, and that all the benefits we get are eternal life from you. Renewal, new life. We pray, Lord, that these things will become very real to us now and in the coming days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.